Hello and welcome back to another Clarkson Wright and Jake's podcast, where this time we'll be discussing the numerous challenges faced with managing redundancy. To talk us through this particularly complex subject is Laura Claridge, Senior Lawyer with CWJ. Now, this is a fairly big subject, so let's focus on the current employment climate. Although there wasn't the rush of redundancies that were perhaps first anticipated at the end of furlough, the economic outlook still looks fairly uncertain and no doubt businesses will be reviewing their staffing requirements and their staffing levels as we seem to emerge from the pandemic over the coming months. So where organisations are forced into making reductions to their workforce, Laura, can you can you talk us through some of the basics such as when does a redundancy situation arise? Hi Chris, yes. Um, We know that redundancy arises when a business needs to reduce its headcount and this can cover a wide range of situations. It could be driven by external factors like recession, loss of a key client or internal factors like the changes in the nature of products provided, developments in technology or other efficiencies or an internal reorganisation reducing the need for a larger workforce. Generally speaking, in the event of a claim, tribunal won't get too involved with the employer's freedom to make business decisions and provided a tribunal is satisfied that redundancy is the genuine reason for dismissal it won't look behind the underlying business decision. To meet the definition of a redundancy situation it arises when one of the following three circumstances apply. Business closure so where a business is closing down altogether, a workplace closure where one particular site is closing down or relocating And the third is where the business has a diminished requirement for employees to do work of a particular kind. One area where there can be dispute is where a business intends to to close and reopen, for example, following a refurbishment. Whether this amounts to a redundancy situation will be a question of fact. Looking at things like length of closure, will the business reopen as a new venture or continue along the same lines? And again, this is a question of fact in each case. But we're not talking about changes in ownership. If there's a change in ownership, employers will of course need to have in mind 2P. There isn't the time today to go into all the ins and outs of 2P, but if it does apply, proceed with caution and seek advice before any dismissals, because this could give rise to a claim for automatically unfair dismissal. Business reorganisations or reshuffles won't always lead to redundancies. It will be a case of going back to the definition and looking at whether the changes cause a diminution in the requirement for employees carrying out a certain type of work. Note as well that redundancy can arise at the end of a fixed term contract. If an employee has more than two years service, this potentially gives rise to a redundancy situation, depending on the underlying reason for ending the fixed term contract. In the event of challenge, the tribunal will look at whether the employer acted reasonably in treating redundancy as the reason for dismissal and whether whether the decision was in the range of reasonable responses. The employer will need to warn and consult employees about the proposed redundancy and adopt a fair selection process and look at whether there are any ways of avoiding redundancy, in particular by considering whether there are any suitable roles as a means of avoiding redundancy. When considering reasonableness, the tribunal will take into account the employer's size and administrative resources, but this won't get a small employer off the hook for failing to consult at all. Employers will still need to carry out a reasonable consultation in the circumstances. Uh, Thanks, Laura. So I think for me, it seems fairly straightforward um, in terms of the reasons for a redundancy situation. But 
Again, in my experience, where many businesses face difficulties um, is with applying a fair redundancy process. So as an example, if we go back to October 2020, the CIPD research found that a high number, a quarter of companies admitted that they were not aware of their legal responsibilities around consulting staff before making redundancies. Um, and for small businesses, this rose to almost a third. So I think it may be helpful to run through the process to follow once a business is confident that one of those redundancy situations apply. Um, first of all, a reminder, this only applies to employees have, who have two or more years service. Only these employees with long enough service are entitled to a redundancy payment or a formal consultation. The process to follow will depend on the number of staff affected. For small-scale redundancies, where less than 20 employees are to be dismissed, there's no set statutory procedure. The principles come from case law. Our focus today is on these smaller-scale redundancies, but note that if more than 20 employees are going to be dismissed from the same workforce within a period of 90 days, the statutory collective redundancy consultation requirements apply. In these cases, there's a duty to notify the Secretary of State and to inform and consult with affected staff, their elected reps or trade union in good time prior to the decision being made and before individual consultations. Failing to comply with the requirement to inform and consult can be costly and result in a protective award for up to 90 days pay. But if we assume less than 20 employees, you will need to carry out a fair procedure for each affected employee. When going through the process, keep a note of actions taken and minutes of meetings. A good paper trail will be essential in the event of a claim. And remember that all notes will be disclosable in the event of an unfair dismissal claim. At an early stage, put together a list of any alternative vacancies within the organisation and share this with affected staff as a means of avoiding redundancy. Decide on the pool of employees at risk and determine selection criteria. When you have selected the pool, meet with all of the at-risk employees as a group and explain the reasons for potential redundancies and how many jobs are at risk. Make clear there are no firm decisions because the business is looking at ways of trying to avoid redundancy. Seek feedback from staff with suggested ways of avoiding redundancy. Inform staff of the proposed selection criteria. At-risk employees are entitled to take reasonable time off to seek alternative employment and attend interviews, so inform them of this. Follow up in writing to all affected staff. Those at risk will then need to be scored based on the selection criteria to provisionally select them to be dismissed. Send a second letter inviting the provisionally selected employees to a one-to-one -one meeting to discuss their selection. The letter should give the employee reasonable notice of the meeting and summarise the consultation that has taken place so far. Okay, so thank you. Um, we've put together a list of the most, or well, what we feel the most commonly asked questions regarding redundancies to ask you. Um, so let's start with a fairly straightforward one. Should staff be allowed to bring someone with them to their one-to-one -one meetings? Yes, definitely. It's best practice to allow employees to bring a trade union rep or colleague to any one-to-one -one meetings for support and to make a note of discussions. Failing to do so will be a factor that may lead to the dismissal being judged unfair, so it's safest to allow the employee the right to be accompanied. At the first one-to-one -one meeting, explain the reasons for provisional selection and note the employee's comments on their selection and any suggestions about alternatives to redundancy. Provide details of any alternative roles, including any that might require some training or any posts on a lower grade. 
after the first one-to-one meeting, look into any alternatives suggested by the employee and take any follow-up action so that you can provide feedback to them. If nothing has changed and the decision is confirmed that the role is redundant, invite the employee to a second one-to-one meeting and confirm selection. You'll need to go through their redundancy, final pay entitlements and leaving arrangements and follow up the meeting with a dismissal letter. It's best to give the employee the letter in the meeting so that the decision is clear. Brilliant, thank you. Um, We'll we'll ask a question around uh, pay entitlement a little bit later, but um, there's obviously a number of things, important things to consider when conducting a fair process, but what about after the final decision has been made? Um, So one of the questions which is, is asked quite commonly is, Should we give the employee the right to appeal against a redundancy decision? Certainly it's best practice to do this and give them a time limit in which to lodge their appeal. But there's no absolute requirement to offer an appeal in every case. For example, there's little point if the business intends to cease trading. But in most cases, offering an appeal will help to show reasonableness. Ideally, any appeal meeting should be held by somebody other than the person who made the original decision and following the meeting, confirm the final decision and that's the end of the process. Right, thank you. Um, Just going back to the consultation period, I've often been asked how long this should last for. Um, Is there a prescribed timescale for consultation? For small scale, less than 20 redundancies, no. Generally, the shorter the consultation, the more likely it is that the quality of consultation might be questioned. But at the same time, this will be a distressing time and it is kinder to handle the process promptly to avoid prolonging the distress. So check diaries of those handling the process to ensure good availability during the consultation period to avoid undue delay. At the point of meeting with the employee, it needs to be clear that they can still have an effect on the final decision. As a minimum, they should be allowed to comment on the basis for selection, the pool and the criteria. They should be given the opportunity to challenge and explain any factors that may have led to their selection and generally address any other concerns that they may have. Um, Laurie, you mentioned the pool and fair selection. So what are the key points when selecting the pool? Also, is a smaller pool preferable to avoid too much disruption um, and involving lots of staff unnecessarily in the process. It will be tempting to make the pool as small as possible and the choice of pool is a balancing act between not wanting to unsettle the workforce generally but also keeping it wide enough to show that the process was reasonable. Employees will argue for a wider pool which will involve a more onerous procedure but employers will want to keep it fairly narrow. The choice of pools should be within the range of reasonable responses and employers should be able to show the tribunal that they considered the choice of pool and so long as you can show that you've thought it through, it's difficult for employees to challenge the pool. So be ready to explain your decision-making process. There's no requirement for the pool to be limited to employees doing the same or similar work, but generally this is likely to be the case. So consider what the employee actually does rather than focusing on the written job description. Also look at any crossover of work, whether an employee has previously done other types of work, low skilled work is more likely to be regarded as interchangeable. You may also need to look at workers on nearby sites elsewhere, particularly where there's crossover and employees have worked previously at the affected site. So again, just another another question about the pool. Could, could we have a pool of one if we wanted to? Yeah, there's no there's case law that goes both way on ways on this. 
and it's been found to be reasonable in some cases, but not in others. The tribunal will scrutinise the decision carefully, so you'd need to be prepared to show that you applied your mind to the choice of Paul and to explain and justify it. Generally, at the least, you'll need to be able to show that the employee is in a unique role if there is a pool of just one. Okay, all right, so we've selected our pool um, of employees at risk of redundancy. We're reasonably comfortable and happy with it. Um, next step, how do we go about scoring the employees to ensure uh, fair selection for redundancy and are there any pitfalls to avoid? It's a good idea to allow employee input on the selection criteria and to comment on it as part of the process. As far as possible, the criteria should be objective, capable of independent verification and measurable. If it's too difficult to come up with objective criteria, for example, if performance data hasn't been routinely collected, then any criteria based on personal opinion or subjective criteria should be limited and carried out by different managers to try and get a balanced result to avoid bias. But selection on purely subjective grounds is likely to be unfair. It will be much easier for the employee to allege discrimination if only subjective criteria are relied on. Selection criteria can include performance, ability, length of service, attendance and disciplinary records and it's reasonable to attach different weightings to to the criteria. With performance and ability, the criteria needs to be clearly defined and ideally refer to a written record such as appraisals rather than relying on opinions at the time of the redundancy exercise. Ensure that the period of review provides a long enough snapshot for those in the pool to be judged on a level playing field. Appraisals are useful because if the employee accepted the appraisal at the time, it will be difficult to challenge it at a later date, but caution needs to be taken where appraisals haven't been carried out regularly for some of the employees, or if appraisals have been carried out by different managers with inconsistent approaches. If taking into account attendance records, things like absences for pregnancy-related illness and disability should be discounted to avoid discrimination Reasonable adjustments should be made for any disability absences and it's often safer just to avoid attendance altogether. Okay, got some more questions for you. Um, Now, I think it's a fairly outdated approach, um, but what about the approach of last in, first out? Can this be used as a selection criterion? Um, It needs to be used with care and shouldn't be used as a sole criteria because this is likely to result in claims for unfair dismissal and indirect discrimination on the grounds of age and sex. It might be acceptable as part of a balanced set of criteria or as a tie break, but um, in the event of a discrimination claim, you'd need to be able to justify its use as a means of achieving a legitimate aim. So think about the grounds for using this as a selection criteria and be prepared to justify it. Brilliant. Can you explain what is meant by the term bumping and its use within um, a redundancy situation? This is where a potentially redundant employee A is moved into another role and the employee currently in that role, employee B, is dismissed as a result of being bumped. This will amount to a redundancy of employee B's employment, even if there's no reduced requirement for employee B's role. There is no general obligation to consider bumping, but in some cases it will be unreasonable not to. You'll need to then consult with the bumped employee. Okay, thank you. Um, Employees selected, uh, next question, uh, employees selected for redundancy often want to see the scores of other employees to conduct a comparison and to challenge those scores. I guess it's human nature. Um, Do we need to share other employees' selection matrix scores to ensure transparency, if requested? The individual scores are confidential and any sharing will need to be compliant with the GDPR. 
It may be possible to anonymise the data, but in a small pool, it may be possible to identify colleagues from their scores, even even if they are anonymised. The individual's own scores need to be shared to allow them to challenge the scoring and to have input and understand why they were scored in a particular way. And you may also be able to provide the cut-off mark that the employee would have had to obtain to avoid being selected for redundancy. But there's no general requirement to share all scores, and especially if identity is clear from the scores, these will be confidential. Thank you. Um, Another part of a a legal process is around... uh 